Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. And like everyone else around the country, we are all things COVID here at MCHD EMS. And we're coming again with another COVID episode. We've updated some of the epidemiology and some of the uh, viral specifics uh, here in the last month. We've talked about our COVID airway approach here at MCHD. We're going to take a little bit of a 90 degree turn here and talk about uh, one of the COVID topics that's been really hot in the news, in the lay press, even uh, in some Twitter feed of our president. We're going to talk about uh, hydroxychloroquine and what happens when folks take too much hydroxychloroquine and kind of, you know, how this all got started and what the potential for the drug's use is in COVID. And we've got our uh, resident podcast talks guru, Dr. Jerry Snow from Banner Health down in Phoenix. Thanks for joining us, Jerry. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. So for the listeners out there, hydroxychloroquine or trade name Plaquenil is a drug that's been used for a long time in a lot of uh, autoimmune disorders, uh, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis for, uh, in a real basic sense, an anti-inflammatory. Um, so let's start with some of those basics Jerry, tell the listeners about chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine. What are they used for commonly? Uh, how do they work? And again, why the resurgence in the lay press? Why have we heard so much about this over the past couple of weeks? Absolutely. So, you know, chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine are both FDA approved medications um, in the U.S. And folks may be familiar with chloroquine being used for malaria prophylaxis and treatment where it's still effective, where there has been some resistance over the years it has developed. But both these drugs have been used for, uh, for many, many, many decades and continue to be used to this day. And as you as mentioned, uh, hydroxychloroquine has been used more as an anti-inflammatory here in the U.S. as of late in the treatment of rheumatic autoimmune disorders such as rheumatoid arthritis and lupus, um, just like you stated. So as an anti-malarial uh, chloroquine, and similar medicines like hydroxychloroquine, they inhibit the ability of the parasite um, to detoxify hemozosin. And this leads to accumulation of toxic chem byproducts, which eventually leads to the parasite death. So that's how it affects the parasites and how it's an effective anti-malarial. We'll get into more how it affects us because it doesn't have anything to do with hemotabolism, um, how it causes toxicity in humans. But I think the uh, resurgence as you mentioned, really comes from the amount of media attention um, that uh, these medications have garnered over the last few weeks. And, you know, there's been a lot of significant coverage in the news claiming these antiviral effects of hydroxychloroquine in combination with specifically azithromycin being associated with more rapid disappearance of a detectable virus, as well as clinical improvement in patients with COVID-19. Um, and there's also reports of chloroquine in treating COVID-19. Unfortunately, overall, when you look at the quality of the evidence, it's really quite poor. And I really feel it's too early to make any recommendations for using these outside of clinical trials um, at this time. But there's been a lot of attention. And, you know, I think people are really looking for something, you know, looking for an answer, looking for an option when it comes to treatment. And um, so I think that's why you're seeing the attention that you have. Yeah, just to sort of piggyback on there, my rudimentary look at, at some of this data, you know, especially the study that I believe uh, President Trump was citing, you know, 
the initial headline was 100% cure. And, you know, as a non EBM guru, one of the first things that, that, you know, we were both taught EBM by the same folks. And one of the first things that, that we were taught was if something sounds too good to be true, then it probably is. And right. I would, you know, <laughs> any study, whether it's a medical or otherwise, you see a hundred percent success rate and that's got to ring some, some skepticism bells there. And, you know, my brief look at that study that, that got a majority of this press, the hydroxychloroquine azithromycin study, was A, extremely small numbers, B, they pulled the sickest patients out, and C, they didn't look for viral load levels in the control group. So there was some huge uh, study flaws there. Now, does that mean that there's no hope or no use for hydroxychloroquine? No. Does it need to be studied? Yes. Has it been studied in other viruses? Yes. Uh, but I believe it just got a little snowball. And I think, like you said, realistically, people are trying to uh, hold on to some form of hope or something that they can grasp onto in a situation where there are just so many unknowns. Um, so I know that there was an overdose uh, of hydroxychloroquine that got quite a bit of lay press in your area, Jerry. So if we encounter a patient that takes too much hydroxychloroquine, uh, what clinical picture might we see? Because I, I, obviously there's been a run on pharmacies selling out of this and folks from all walks of life trying to secure their own hydroxychloroquine. I believe the, the story that made the lay press, the patients took hydroxychloroquine that was used for, or at least a hydroxychloroquine form that was used in aquarium cleaners, which is wild in and of itself. But in an overdose toxicity situation, uh, how do these folks look? How do they present? Yeah, that specific aquarium cleaning product was actually it was chloroquine phosphate, 100% chloroquine phosphate. So yeah, so hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine have very similar toxicity. But when you look at the animal studies and then what's panned out to what we see clinically is chloroquine does appear to be even more toxic than hydroxychloroquine. A lot of what we see clinically has to do with sodium potassium channel blockade and its effects on the cardiovascular system. And typically with these ingestions, the reason you've got to have a tremendous amount of respect for both these agents is, is symptoms come on, you know, very rapidly, usually within the first three hours, people can come critically ill in, in a short amount of time. And so sometimes these patients present initially with, with GI symptoms, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and abdominal pain. And that was recently reported um, in the cases that um, a lot of people are aware of through the news and everything. And this can be very rapidly followed by respiratory depression, even apnea, hypotension, cardiovascular collapse, and even shock. Um, and this happens precipitously. I mean, the patient, this is the kind of patient that may walk out to the cart, like they call 911 after they've taken the ingestion, they walk to the cart, but then they cardiac arrest before you get them into the ED. You know, if it was like a 20 minute transport, that would be a totally realistic scenario that the people can get that sick that quickly. Wow. That's, and, a, uh, that's a point really for the listeners. Oh yeah. You know, if you, absolutely. if you run into one of these, this is one where your antenna have to be, you know, up to the max because they can drop on you in that 20 yeah. minute transport. And that's our transport times here in, in Montgomery County. So yeah. I think a lot of times with our toxins, we not, not lax, but most things, most ingestions aren't going to cause that precipitous of a collapse that quickly. So to, to my MCHD yeah. folks out there, put that one on your, on your list there quick, 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 and be alert and be aware and 
listen to the listen to the to the next part of Jerry's spiel here for sure. Yeah, you uh, it's definitely one of those where you can't let their lack of symptoms or their even their relatively normal vital signs initially you know, comfort you very much because that, that can change within minutes and these people will, they'll deteriorate right in front of you. Um, something else that's interesting about these is I've mentioned their effects on sodium as well as potassium channels. The EKG can be pretty abnormal as well. You can see widening of the QRS. You can see really significant QTC prolongation to the point of ventricular dysrhythmias and then just other non-specific STT wave changes as a lot of people are aware, you know, uh, the tox EKG can really be abnormal looking as well. And then neurologically, these patients definitely can have very significant CNS depre depression or just vague symptoms too initially, like maybe just complaining of dizziness or headache, but then that can progress to CNS depression and seizures as well. So the, the big takeaways I want people to remember, especially with chloroquine, is you get CNS, respiratory depression, even apnea soon after a large ingestion. And then you get really significant vasodilatory effects. So you get hypotension, cardiovascular collapse and shock, and then seizures are often commonly reported. So those are things you definitely want to clinically be very astute and be looking for, like you said, keep your antenna up. A couple other things that I'll just mention that you really won't know about maybe in the, you know, pre-hospital setting. One of which I want to mention is these drugs can also cause a sulfonylurea-like effect by a similar mechanism. They can cause hypoglycemia. So if anybody's altered or seizing or anything like that, obviously this is one of those times that, like you always would, you grab an AccuCheck. Um, Chloroquine, interestingly enough, causes really significant, oftentimes, hypokalemia. Now, you may not know that in a pre-hospital setting, but they can have very low potassiums. And then, interestingly enough, in patients with G6PD, the patient can really have significant hemolysis. But those are just things that I'll mention knowing that, you know, you're not going to have access to that information probably in the pre-hospital setting. And I guess just for our listeners, Jerry, between hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but our chances of seeing an overdose situation here in the States now with the COVID-19 pandemic and the, and the kind of rash purchase and procurement of, of these drugs, we're much more likely to see hydroxychloroquine as opposed to chloroquine, correct? Just, just from a sheer, uh, you know, yeah, more, as as like more commonly available, available to people. Yes, I totally agree. You've got you've got more prescriptions filled of hydroxychloroquine than you do chloroquine. Like, what are people going to have at the house? What are they going to have access to? You know, the treatment of rheumatological diseases. I mean, we're treating a lot more people for rheumatological diseases than we are malaria prophylaxis or treatment, for instance. So, yeah, it would be, you know, my opinion that there are definitely more, there's more access to hydroxychloroquine than chloroquine. So, just to sort of circle back around for the medics listening, that... <laughs> If you're like me, these people are super complex and wildly variable, variable in all the basically uh, disorders, all the the dysfunctional pathology that these pathophysiology these folks can present with. Let's let's wrap up the big ones. So CNS depression and or seizures. So think about uh, being ready with benzos, uh, shock. So potentially uh, pressors and fluids. Uh, you you know you may have to manage an airway. You want to get a quick EKG to look for, um, you know, dysrhythmias, uh, widen QRS, and then finally, if you've got an altered patient, and we're going to nail this every time here at MCHD. I trust my listeners out there, but make sure you're getting that AccuCheck, sulfonylurea, 
reaction was one that I wasn't aware of. And again, uh, those are our uh, type 2 diabetes uh, medications that we use to lower blood sugar. So uh, beware of all those. So again, quite complex, quite variable. Extending off from all that deranged pathophysiology that we, that we just talked about, Jerry, what are some of the treatments that we're going to need to consider in the EMS setting? And I just started to, to touch on some of those, but drill down to some of those a little more specifically. And our listeners always like to know what the next step is. So yeah. we're going to do A, B, and C. What are X, Y, and Z that you take over as the toxicologist in the ED? So, so take us through that presentation and some of the treatments that we're going to need to have in our armamentarium and some of the things that you're going to extend out once they get to the hospital. Sure. Absolutely. So just to reiterate again, the, the points that you, you just brought up, you know, it's aggressive supportive care. Um, you know, you're going to want to get your safety net down that you mentioned. These are people that you get on the monitor, you get a large bore IV, you put them on oxygen. And even if they look well, if I mean, if I was transporting one of these patients, even if they seem to be asymptomatic, I'm throwing them on the monitor, I'm throwing a large bore IV in them. I'm going to grab an AccuCheck and just please don't forget that these patients literally can deteriorate and die from going from asymptomatic, you know, in a short period of time, they can just kind of fall off the cliff there. And then a lot of that has to do with large ingestions that cause really significant myocardial depression, dysrhythmias, hypotension. So once these patients make it to the hospital, if they make it to the hospital, we tend to intubate these patients early. If they've got hypotension, if they're having any dysrhythmias, we're probably just going to take A and B right out of the picture and just go ahead and make sure we stabilize them. Um, from that standpoint. And then we're obviously going to treat hypotension early and aggressively. We're going to be giving these patients boluses um, of IV fluids, and we're going to start them on vasopressors. And when you look at the evidence, what's most commonly used now is epinephrine, because um, in the French study from the 1980s, that was the high dose that they used was high dose epinephrine that really seemed to impact um, in mortality when they looked at these patients. So it was early aggressive airway management, high dose epinephrine, and also using benzodiazepine, specifically diazepam was used in that, in that protocol with a high dose epinephrine. And they used really high doses of diazepam as well, like two milligrams per kilo over 30 <laughs> minutes um, doses. Now, 140, I'm not saying, obviously, 140 the milligrams, dude. Right. I'm not saying the the medics are going to be needing to do that um, in the pre-hospital setting. And it's, it's you know, here in Phoenix, most of the time, if you adequately um, sedate and adequately give enough benzodiazepines to stop and prevent any further seizures, it's typically enough. But there are some, you know, theoretical benefits to specifically diazepam and how it might help counter um, some of the complications of, uh, of chloroquine ingestions. So let me back up there. So epinephrine is our preferred presser. So at MCHD, we do have uh, epinephrine as an option for a vasopressor. So for your MCHD listeners out there, if we run into one of these, this is a situation where generally we prefer norepinephrine as our first-line vasopressor, but this is one we would throw into the bucket with um, uh, with um, – sorry, we're going to have to edit that, Andy, because I just my phone just rang. So let me uh, go back and turn my phone off because it wasn't on silent. And we'll go back to the uh, epinephrine statement. Ready? Here we go. So just to reiterate, this is a situation where Jerry is advocating the use of epinephrine as our first line vasopressor in a hydroxychloroquine overdose. And this is uh, that sort of subset of patients 
like anaphylaxis, where we would use epinephrine first. And at MCHD, we have options for both epinephrine and norepinephrine, and we generally say norepinephrine is first line. But again, looks like epinephrine is going to be our presser of choice if we run into a hydroxychloroquine or a Plaquenil overdose. As far as benzos, we have midazolam is our, our choice here. So use midazolam, use as much as you need to uh, stop the seizure. Once the toxicologist gets a hold of it, they may switch over to diazepam or Valium, but we'll stick with our, our Versed. And then, Jerry, just a branch question here. So this patient hops in your truck, walking out, took a large dose of, of hydroxychloroquine, and, you know, medics thinking to themselves, I listen to the podcast, I listen to Dr. Snow, he said these folks can crash quickly. Is there any benefit to once you get that large bore IV in and you're concerned about the cardiovascular collapse, uh, you know, preemptively giving a dose of bicarb or considering uh, magnesium in these patients uh, prophylactically or preemptively before that collapse? Is that something that's done yeah. or advised? I have not seen any studies on that. It's, you know, the sodium bicarbonate, you know, as I alluded to earlier, you can see really significant with chloroquine, especially significant hypokalemia. So some people are going to say, oh, you know, you're going to further drive down their potassium with the sodium bicarbonate. If I had a patient who had a QRS of like 160, <laughs> for instance, I'm going to give that patient some sodium bicarb you know i can always correct their potassium as well if needed but of course i've got the luxury of knowing what those labs are showing once they're in the hospital as well i wouldn't advocate for just go ahead and pushing stuff before i saw a tracing okay. but if you've got a widened qrs i i think it would be reasonable in the pre-hospital send to give a couple amps of bicarb see if it has any effect or not um, with qtc prolongation if i saw a qtc greater than 500 milliseconds i think it'd be re reasonable to give a couple grams of magnesium as well and, and again within um, our within our mchb mchd protocols here we have uh actually rewritten our bicarbonate in qrs widening it was originally written for uh, tricyclic overdoses. And as we know now, there are multiple other medications we can see in the in the tox realm that can cause QRS widening. So this one falls into that wastebasket now to where if you pick up a hydroxychloroquine overdose and you see that widened QRS, give it bicarb like you would a Benadryl or a Seroquel or an Elevil, any of those QRS widening agents. And I'm, I'm you know, with, with consult, we're not going to put this into the uh, into the protocol, but if this is something that you see and you recognize that that long QTC, and again remember that eyeball test greater than half the R to R to the end of the T wave. If you're looking closely and you see that, and you're like, man, that T wave's really stretched out there, and you've got a long QTC, uh, a gram or two of magnesium, we've got that in the truck as well. That would be something with a consult that I will be happy to get that phone call and clear that as well. What about, what about charcoal, Jerry? I know we don't carry charcoal in the trucks here at MCHD anymore. Some of the listeners out there might in their EMS service. Is charcoal advised in these folks early on or, or no? Right. So charcoal's tough, right? <laughs> so, you know. Every toxicologist's favorite question. So I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to split the difference here for you. So what I will tell you is that chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine both absolutely will bind to charcoal. And if you if you mixed it with charcoal and took it, you probably would have little toxicity from it. The problem is, is that these patients can get seizures 
and then have, you know, not only just CNS depression where you're concerned about their airway, but they could seize, they could become apneic, and then, you know, they could have GI symptoms where they could vomit. So, you know, I probably would not be real aggressive with charcoal without an airway. You know, if that patient rolled into the hospital and the medics were like, hey, 30 minutes ago, we intubated this guy in route because he became, you know, CNS and respiratory depression. We've got the IV in, we we're giving him some fluids, it was a little, little hypotensive. In that setting, once I know the airway secured and, you know, we've gotten some benzos on board and we've gotten maybe pressors on board if needed and we're doing all the other therapies, I would consider it then, but I would be hesitant to recommend them throwing it in a person, even if they look well initially, because you don't know what's going to happen over the next 20 or 30 minutes. And obviously you're putting that in via NG tube, right? The ET ETT's blown, ET tubes blown up. You're safe. The patient's sedated, the patient's benzoed up and they're not going to be going anywhere or, or doing anything or becoming more altered. You've controlled them and you're dumping it down the NG. So I thought that's what your answer would be. We did a, exchange questions here without answers. So I, I was hopeful that was where that one was going to go. And again, not, not an issue here at MCHD. We don't carry charcoal anymore, but I know yeah. some services do. So be careful with charcoal. If you're going to give it uh, either control that airway or be, be ready to control that airway. Cause an aspirated charcoal lung is not a pretty picture either. You don't want to create a second problem. So let's uh, move on into the pediatric world. And I, uh, put together a podcast a year or so ago, 18 year, 18 months or so ago about one pill killers. One of my favorite topics in impedes because I feel like, especially from an EMS standpoint, these are situations where parents can ask for refusals because kids look well. And then they have crashing situations an hour or two or six hours later because the clonidine or the uh, hypoglycemic or whatever medication, the, the sodalol, that the that grandma takes, it's not very agreeable with a three or four year old. Uh, are there specific pediatric considerations as far as the one pill killer uh, discussion that uh, medics need to be aware of with hydroxychloroquine? Yeah, I mean, I would put chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine um, both in the one pill can kill um, when it comes to children, especially those small, you know, the kids that are going to be getting exploratory. Um, ingestions like that toddler-like age, you know, um, older infants. And uh, I would definitely put this on the single pill can kill list. Um, you know, a single pill could definitely cause, you know, potentially life-threatening um, symptoms in a child. So this is not one of those that I would ever let somebody have a, a right of refusal as far as transport goes. These kids absolutely need to come to the hospital and be assessed. Excellent. So what about drug interactions, Jerry? Are there danger medications that do not mix mix well with hydroxychloroquine? And, and I, you know, this is one with a bit of a, an answer built in, obviously, the, in the study and in the treatment of COVID, hydroxychloroquine was paired with azithromycin. And there was a lot of backlash with some of the advice to take these two medications, or at least the suggestion that they were magic cures not only because the toxicity of hydroxychloroquine, but because of the pairing of these two. Why is that, Jerry? Yeah, so I mean, broadly speaking, you know, both these medications should be used in extreme caution with people who potentially could have congenital prolonged QT, obviously. And then as you mentioned, when you're combining um, either of these medications with medications that are known to prolong the QT, so whether it's azithromycin, many of the antipsychotics, even antibiotics. I mean, when you look at the medications that cause QT prolongation, 
there are many. <laughs> so you really would have to, you know, if, if patients, people, those that are prescribing these medications, you need to be well aware of that. Um, that would be my, my biggest concern is that people not paying close attention to these drug-drug interactions with, you know, QTC prolongation leading toward torsades. And then obviously each patient is an individual and has underlying, you know, pathology or certain characteristics as well. So obviously patients with like cardiomyopathy, older patients, um, the female sex, people with electrolyte disorders, these are all people that are at higher risk of QTC prolongation. So I think those are the, the biggest thing. The biggest group is any other medications that prolong QT, you'd really want to be aware of. Something else when it comes to drug metabolism is um, uh, CYP, uh, the P450 system, CYP2D6. Um, it's very polymorphic. Some people are poor metabolizers. Some people are ultra metabolizers. And there can be a lot of drug-drug interactions due to uh, metabolism through 2D6 as well. Um, as I mentioned, you can give this to, you know, the same dose to 100 different people and, you know, of the same age and weight and everything. But just based on the metabolism through 2D6, you'll get widely different blood concentrations. So, you know, this is why some people will get prolonged QT taking these medications and others may not. Same thing with the hypoglycemia that you could see. So obviously another group of patients you'd want to be very careful with is like the type 2 diabetic, type 2 diabetic, as you already mentioned. If they're already on a sulfonylurea and then you add, you know, chloroquine on top of that, you may get pretty significant hypoglycemia. And just to decipher, uh, Jerry going into full tox mode there, uh, <laughs> The cytochrome system is is basically a drug drug breakdown system, for lack of a better term. And what Jerry's getting at there is that I may be five foot ten and one hundred and sixty five pounds, and my twin brother may be five foot ten and one hundred and sixty five pounds, and we both take a hundred milligrams of hydroxychloroquine and check our blood levels in an hour, and they're variable because the way each of our body breaks down hydroxychloroquine can be can be markedly different between individuals. So I may, I may be given the combination of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin when I get COVID-19 and get intubated and put in the hospital and have no issue because my cytochrome system breaks down hydroxychloroquine normally. If you have a slow metabolizer out there, uh, my next door neighbor, and they get put in the ICU on uh, the ventilator with COVID-19 and they get azithromycin and hydroxychloroquine and they're again, a slow metabolizer, their blood levels may be higher, therefore more cardiovascular effects, more prolonged QT and the potential for torsades and, and dysrhythmias. So uh, you have, we have to be careful. And that's not something that we can willy nilly go to the pharmacy and grab. And every time we get a cough or a cold, you know, pop a hydroxychloroquine in a Z-Pak. Because again, one of the main side effects of Z-Pak or azithromycin is that QT prolongation. So you add those two together and you factor in variable metabolism and that's a, a true danger zone situation. So we know we're looking for alter mental status. We're looking for cardiac dysrhythmias. We're looking for hypoglycemia. We're looking for shock. So those are the big ones. Um, and they can present and decompensate very quickly. We want to be ready to manage the airway. We want to be ready to get pressure started. We want to be ready to start fluids, IV access, get them on the monitor, get a blood glucose. Once they get to the hospital, uh, Jerry's going to manage their airway, going to sink an NG and potentially use charcoal if the timing is right, but not until then. Uh, we 
really want to be aware of kids or especially toddlers get a hold of this because it can be a, a one pill killer and we don't want to mix any of uh, hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine with any other QT prolongers. So that's, that, that's the high points there. Um, realistically, are, the, are there any other kitchen th sink treatments, Jerry, that folks are trying once these, once these patients get to the hospital? Uh, you lip, could potentially lip, lip see emulsion these patients. or ECMO or yeah, any of the other. Sure. I mean, both, both those, I know lipid emulsion has definitely been, you know, reported in the past. So in, in patients that have, are having persistent um, cardiac dysrhythmias or persistent hypotension that weren't responding to other aggressive measures, you know, it, it should be considered. And then obviously um, I haven't seen specific data um, on using ECMO, but if I had a patient that could just kept having recurrent ventricular dysrhythmias um, or was having, you know, shock that we couldn't really support them through, through even with multiple vasopressors, you know, you know, if you were at an ECMO center that had, uh, you know, that as an option, that would be a consideration as well. I just haven't seen a lot of data specifically with these drugs. Excellent. Excellent. Well, as always, Jerry, thanks for joining us. Are there any other main points you want to get out there? Anything else that we've uh, not touched on that you want to hit on? Otherwise we're going to get this one wrapped up and edited and out to our listeners as soon as possible. Anything else you want to add? Sure. I, the, the only other thing I would mention is I think it's uh, important to note and knowledge that there, there hasn't been any controlled data supporting the use of any of these agents and their efficacy for COVID-19 is really unknown. So while, you know, it's, it's, you know, exciting to possibly have an option out there for therapy, we definitely need, you know, better studies, better clear-cut evidence of, you know, benefit versus potential harms. Um, so while there's nothing definitive, I mean, outside of a clinical study, I don't think really anybody should be taking these medications. I mean, they shouldn't be taking this for prophylaxis. They shouldn't be taking it for treatment. This should be only in a controlled inpatient scenario where people are enrolled in a study or the critically, critically ill in an inpatient study where, I mean, like you said, they're doing everything they can to possibly, you know, improve this patient's chance of survival. So if you're listening out there and you've got some hydroxychloroquine in your cabinet, don't take it, it Don't take <laughs> it when you get a cough, cold, or sniffles. And also, there are rheumatoid arthritis patients. There are lupus patients out there that depend on this medication to manage their disease. And if we're hoarding this up and stick it in our cabinets in case we get COVID with no evidence to support that, you're also potentially harming someone out there who depends on this. So from a community-wide uh, community good standpoint, don't be hoarding medication that we have no proof that works. And there are studies ongoing right now enrolling multiple sites, multiple centers in the states. There are plenty of COVID patients, unfortunately, to supply these studies. So we're going to have bigger, randomized, prospective studies that give us the answer that we need coming actually fairly soon. If you followed any journals for the last couple weeks, it's COVID 100%. So there are researchers out there doing this work. We're going to get these answers. But for right now, let's wait until we hear those final results before we start stocking our medicine cabinets with a hydroxychloroquine. Jerry, thanks as always for joining us. This is great info for the listeners out there. So for all those that have asked questions on our nightly call here at MCHD about hydroxychloroquine, this should uh, give you your fill. Please like us, review us, give us a thumbs up wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have questions or comments, email us at the podcast email, podcast at mchd-tx.org. And we'll talk to everybody again soon. Probably more COVID. Thanks for joining us. 
This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.